and welcome again to another episode of our Grant Thornton COP28 series, part of the Financial Services Risk and Regulation podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Anthony Hobley here at COP28 in Dubai. Anthony is a climate leader who has been pioneering a number of climate matters for many, many years. 20th COP, as far as I understand. Indeed, yes. Um, having been the CEO and now the co-chair of the Carbon Track Initiative, as well as the global head of the Sustainability and Climate Finance Practice at Norton Ross Fulbright. And currently, Anthony is a senior strategic advisor to Howden Group. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Thank you very much for being with me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. I mean, this is um, such an exciting uh you know, I think podcast, I mean, I think as you were telling me, this is getting so much traction um, in the space. So, you know, I, I'm just very privileged to be here with you and I'm looking Thank forward you. to the conversation. Very kind of you. Thank you. And, and perhaps just to start with, could you tell us briefly what is your current focus in, in Howden Group and what does your role entail? Yes. Well, I mean, I have, a, you know, as you alluded to, I have a number of hats, but I mean, this is this is one of those those once in a life or once in a career opportunities um it and i've you know i feel like i've already had at least one if not a couple um you know carbon tracker and, and, and building carbon markets in, in the legal world um and rowan douglas who you know, i think anyone in the insurance space anyone knows anything about risk and insurance knows rowan douglas um he is a real guru in the space and he's building this team um, and together with the vision of David Howden um, at Howden's, so if you don't know anything about Howden's, I mean, very quickly, it's a broker. Um, it's the fastest growing uh, in the market. It's been growing at an incredible rate over the last sort of 20 years. Very innovative and entrepreneurial. And I think David has been talking a lot about the fact that the insurance industry has to rise to the challenge. And if it doesn't, it risks uh, becoming irrelevant. Um, and he's brought Rowan on, I think, in many ways to build an all-star cast. Now, I'm not an insurer, as yep. you just, you know, touching on my background. I was a lawyer for many years now, recovering lawyer. It's one day at a time. But you never stop being a, a lawyer in many ways. And, and I think, you know, as well as building many of the, the, the experts from the insurance space, he also wanted to bring in some people who bring an outside perspective. And so that's a key part of my role, to go out there into the market, into my network, into the climate finance world, corporate world, um, the NGO world, and into governmental government world, and understand where is risk yeah. holding us up? Particularly where, in the context of climate change, I guess. Well, in, in, the, in the context of on both the physical side, yeah. so responding to adaptation and resilience, but also on the economic transition side, the energy transition, for example, the industry transition, where is risk slowing us down? I, you know, and I, the reason I am so excited by this opportunity um, and you know, to, to work in this incredibly visionary organization, Howden's, is that I've lost count of those conversations in those last 20 COPs and, and, and all the other meetings we have with finance to say, we've got all the money, we're making commitments, we've mo we're gonna mobilize trillions, we're gonna align our portfolio with Paris, but we don't have enough projects. Where's the pipeline of projects? Okay, so then you go and talk to the people with the projects and the technologies, and like we've got the technologies, you know, we 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 can do this, but where is the money to scale at the speed that is required? And so that's made me think. Well, I'm quite obsessed, quite frankly, mm -hmm. with what's missing between those two. Um, what are the jigsaw puzzle pieces that we need to put together to bring that finance together with that, that, those technologies so that we can move at speed and scale? Because if we don't. Yeah. You know, 
we're in a we're in a lot of trouble. And I believe that one of those jigsaw puzzle pieces is risk and de-risking in the insurance sector. And I think it it's exciting to be able to be on the ground floor of this because we've seen an incredible growth over the last couple of decades in the in climate finance. There's a there's a real climate finance ecosystem around the yeah. world in places like London, New York, and and so on. There is not an equivalent climate insurance ecosystem. We need to build that market and very quickly. And I actually, I, in many ways, it's the missing piece. You know, it, it's the it's the um, it's the twin, the sibling, the twin sibling of finance. And we, you know, risk has always been an incredible part of any big transition and economy. Um, and we've tended to have forgotten that in the last few years. So we're here, you know not just me, but a, a whole team being built around and Rowan with David Howden's vision and with Charlie Langdale's chair to really see if we can catalyze that market over the next five years to unlock the speed and scale we need to see to, to both adapt to the climate change that's already locked in and to accelerate the transition and those capital flows. Yeah, and it's fantastic you're leading the conversation because I think you're absolutely right. We certainly need the insurance sector to kind of step into um, the conversation as well and actually make sure that they almost are the wrapper if you like because you can't really do climate finance without insurance right so how yeah. do you do that so yeah certainly we need a well, I mean, if you think about it no, no plane takes off no ship leaves yeah, port. Without insurance. you can't get a mortgage on your house um, you can't drive your car without insurance yeah that's great and I guess you've been as I said you've been to quite a few cops before as we just um, mentioned Given where we stand today and, and how the last few days have developed, and we're recording this on day five, um, do you think that we are realistically going to get to some sensible climate decisions as negotiated outcomes? That's the question in every cop <laughs> I've ever been to. Um, you know, and, and I, I think in a, in a way, the first one I went to was the COP this in, I think, in 2000, and that was the additional COP needed because they didn't reach an agreement at that mm. COP. Um, and so they always reach an agreement, you know, even in Copenhagen, that, that's widely considered to have been a failure. Actually, they, they, they made some substantive progress yeah. that did create the foundations for the Paris Agreement in 2015, and, and we tend to forget that. So there will be an agreement. The question is how substantial yeah. what does it lead to? But I think what's also overlooked which is, you know, when you look out, out of this window here across this huge green zone, but, you know, the biggest I think there's ever been, um, is how much also goes on in the fringe around those official negotiations is all the other negotiations, bilateral, multilateral negotiations between businesses, between, you know, intergovernmental organisations and business and between themselves and all the standards and frameworks that get created. Um, you know, TCFD is a good example of, of that and, and many of these other standards and approaches that are creating the infrastructure, the wiring, the plumbing that we need in place. So that's also, I think, for me, an interesting part of this, you know, and that can lead to actual, you know, regulation and that creates the political space for agreement. Because at an internet, you know, talking as a public international lawyer, which, you know, was was part of my practice for many years, it's very unusual for governments to reach treaties, international agreements before they know they can they can deliver on those. So those tend to sort of follow practice quite often, certainly of major states, rather than sort of create um, stretch targets. Yeah. 
So you're saying the voluntary frameworks that emerge from this type of summits are actually equally important as negotiated outcomes because they are at the basis of a lot of the incoming regulations potentially. Yes, yes, and I, you know, and I think the you know, look that you have to face this, this head on because what over 100,000 people registered, and yes. people can quite rightly say, well, you know, how how can you justify all the emissions from bringing all these people together? But I think a lot of the sort of relationships and negotiations and key things that have to be developed, you know, you need to bring people together physically to be in the same room, to, to meet, to build that sort of trust. I mean, that this is a fundamental nature of us as human beings. Um, so that then they can actually work over Zoom and Teams and all the other sort of things virtually and, you know, for the rest of the time. Um, if, if we, you know, but I think we do need to work harder at these events to ensure that these meetings are um, delivery focused and outcome orientated. So what I would like to see more in many of these side events is less of the puff events, and there are a lot of those. Look at me, look at our latest report. Actually, with meetings that say, right, we brought you into through because we want to agree a number of outcomes and critical pieces of the infrastructure that have to be built to get us to net zero to unlock that that speed and scale. And that, those are the things that I, you know, I'm, you know, one of the reasons we're here. You know, Rowan um, and, and Howden and, and David have been talking a lot over the last days about a, a really critical report they've just done with, you know, it's a Cambridge CISL mm -hmm. on actually how could you create a framework to for, for loss and damage that where you mobilize um, the international risk capital markets, the insurance industry, to basically underwrite loss and damage for the most vulnerable nations. And the analysis, you would have thought you know, if you'd ask someone, what would it cost to ensure the economies of some of the most vulnerable countries in the world? Imagine people would have just thought, oh, that's just too much. I mean, how yeah. would you ever do that? Actually, it's, it's not as much as you would have thought. And, you know, both Rowan and David were talking a lot about this yesterday in the Innovation Zone in the Island of Hope, run by Climate Action. Um, and it's getting huge traction because I think people are going, wow, you know, for a billion dollars, you could get 75 billion in coverage. And... That's not that's not wasted money because that immediately provides confidence in those countries. It it has a positive impact on their credit rating and critically their ability to borrow more cheaply today. Um, because you know you're not going to invest in assets and so on if if you think there's a risk of that economy being wiped out, which it, it is an increased risk for, for many vulnerable nature, nations. So I think that's actually one critical development. You know, and we've been here saying asking. If the finance sector, if the donor states, if the multilaterals will work with us to build that framework to create that effectively you know, floor of certainty for those most vulnerable countries. So that's just one example of yeah. I think the sort of concrete things that are coming out uh, of this COP. And it is a result of a lot of work done, being done in, uh, in advance of COP, actually, which I think is yes. a really important part. So to be able to actually come to these kind of agreed outcomes, if you like, we have to do the work up front. And I guess just on the point around critical, basically you mentioned the word, from a, I guess, more of a policy standpoint of view and politically, if you like, what in your view is critical to get agreed at this COP28? Um, then we have to transition. I mean, again, probably dealing with this head on, um, this whole debate around, you know, phase down versus phase out. out. <laughs> I mean, you know, but I think also a recognition that we, we need those pathways at a granular mm. level. I mean, it, it's all very well talking about 
terms at, at that level or, or you know emissions pathways or mobilizing trillions i i ideally would like to see an agreement that we're we're going to put in place across the economies the granular pathway so okay steel sector or the shipping sector exactly how many green steel plants do we need what what circular economy mechanisms need to be in place by 2025 by 2030 by 2035 how many zero emissions trucks have to be on the road how many charging points you know how many zero emissions ships have to be built by 2025 2030 you know what, what decisions need to be made on new clean you know fuels for those and the infrastructure to store them to produce them to make sure they're in the, at the right ports at the right airports um how many carbon capture facilities have to be in place for the cement concrete by by when and what infrastructure behind that we've got to get granular um in, in, and and stop talking at these very high levels because then I think you 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 do have the danger of, of things like greenwashing without that granularity of those benchmarks. And and for you know it's fantastic that we've moved a long way in building the 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 wiring, you know, the the plumbing for disclosure, but disclosure against what? Yeah. And what what benchmarks, what targets, and you know, and and those targets are dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the target you have to achieve by 2025 is very different from the one in 2030 and 2035. So I think you know. We've, we've got to get from the this high level framing, which is you know, a narrative which is, is critically important, sector by sector, country by country, region by region, com- company by company, down to the granular. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we just need to move beyond the conversation about phasing out versus phasing down, because that should be sort of all settled by this point, And we just talk about yes. how we do it. Yes, and if, you, if the oil in, you know, I, I as executive director of the Mission Possible Partnership at the World Economic Forum for a, a, a number of years. And one of the biggest successes of the M- of MPP was these very granular sec- part sectoral or net zero pathways, high ambition net zero pathways and sectoral transition strategies for steel, for cement, for chemicals, for aviation, for shipping, for trucking. And they set out this granularity. Mm-hmm. But you know, the next piece is to drop them down and, and to do those elsewhere. If you did a similar, if you did such a pathway. In consultation with the most ambitious oil and gas companies, climate movement governments, and you you set out at a granular level, you know, by when, which which facilities, you know, we need, which facilities have to be phased out by when, you, you would have a benchmark against which to judge yeah. the sector. And that's you know, that's what we that is what we need. Yeah. And actually while on the on the the, the, the conversation around um, transition. One of the many comments I've heard, even in the last few days, yesterday, a lot of the conversations, obviously, being the finance day, were around transition. A lot of them, there have been a lot of mentions around the point that um, there is such a lack of standardization around decarbonization tracking. And clearly, you are probably one of the biggest experts on, on that. And um, do you think that is a real stand, uh, stopper in terms yes. of... Yeah, it is. Yeah, the, 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 the architecture, the framework, um, the scaffolding has still not been built. I mean, we transition a discussion around transition finance is absolutely the right conversation. But I guess unless you've got those pathways sector by sector, it's very difficult to judge because what would qualify again, you know, if you've got a pathway for, for oil and gas or for the steel sector or for aviation, what would qualify as a valid transition finance investment in 2025 may not qualify in 2030 or 2035. So, you know, to, to, to provide a, you know, an example with the steel sector, we have to have around 100 green steel plants in place by 2030, producing over, you know, around 
350 to 400 billion metric tons of green steel. Um, underlying that is how much hydrogen you would need, how much industrial scale uh, renewables, um, the amount of, you know, uncontaminated secondary steel, you know, would need to be coming back. Um, and that number would be higher. So what you can finance in that sector in 2025, 2030, 2035 would be different. I mean, same for aviation. At the moment, you know, in the next probably, you know, 15, 20 years, financing a massive scale up of SAF uh, would qualify, I think, as transition finance. But as you get into 2035, 2040, you would want to be financing, you know, new technologies, you know, electric mm. for short haul, you know, and, and and maybe we probably don't know yet early days whether it would be a sort of hydrogen powered flights for, for, mm. for longer um, or even other technologies and approaches. Um, and it's similar, I mean, shipping, I think a similar example. I think right now, financing this sort of new technology, putting sales back onto, you know, diesel powered ships, uh, fossil fuel powered ships, brilliant because that does reduce emissions but you know but you want to be financing about 200 zero emission ships by 2030 and as you get closer to 2050 most of that transition financing needs to go into those new zero emission ships not sort of technologies that are reducing the emissions of fossil fuel ships you know so you get an idea it, it, it's dynamic yeah we haven't done the work to build those dynamic baselines mm. those pathways across the economy yeah. And I guess on that, where do you think the policymakers and regulators should actually focus their work on to, so for us, for all of us to be able to achieve meaningful progress, because surely they must be leading part of the pathway, if you like. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, bringing it back to insurance, one of the things that I have found fascinating coming from other sectors, in most other sectors, you get a forward price curve um, for any kind of commodity. What I find fascinating is there is no forward price curve for the cost of insuring risk for risk. Yeah. I mean, you get it on an annual basis. So and then as we're beginning to see, then then there may be areas where it becomes uninsurable. The premium goes up, but it gets to a point where they say, well, we're not going to, to insure that. Imagine if you had a price curve on that and some idea of, oh, well, OK, if we don't if, if we don't do X, Y and Z, you know, eight years from now, there is a high risk of, of this area or this technology or this, you know, issue being un, uninsurable. Think about then the, the impetus to to mitigate, to to manage around that, to develop, actually to innovate, to develop the sort of a new generation of risk products. I think what I've again found quite interesting is in the finance sector, it's second nature now to develop blended in products yep. I mean and to think about how do you how do you when you need to finance things particularly things that there's a very strong policy objective around how do you bring together public money even philanthropic money increasingly uh, with private sector money to sort of you know share the risk open up new markets bring private sector in scale up that scale up exactly um, now there's there's some of that Mm. Yeah, particularly around you know some experimentation around cap bonds and other things in the in the risk sector um but it's not second nature maybe in the way it's becoming within climate finance and so that's one of the things we want to explore is there a way in which we can work together with uh, governments with ndbs dfis uh with philanthropy to create blended products where you're bringing commercial insurance into new markets, maybe new emerging, you know, emerging markets where we need to really scale investment in the energy transition or into new 
technologies like you know battery storage, um, you know batteries in in sort of uh, automotive sector, new building materials, new building designs, that sort of thing. Um, and insurers get exposure to that. They build up data. Um, they and then you crowd out the public sector, and so you've opened up new markets. You're de-risking the transition in a way that is scalable. Because I don't believe that you know. I think it's fantastic that philanthropy um, and public money is 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 coming in to to innovate yeah. to get you know get get the ball rolling, but. That's, I don't believe that's scalable in the way it could be scalable if you can mobilise the global um, insurance sector. And it's such a huge global challenge that unless we all work together and find ways to sort of formalise this public-private partnership you're talking about, pretty much the, the, the way that the World Economic Forum is doing a lot of its work, for example, I think we're never going to actually get to, as you say, to the meaningful progress we're all looking for. Final question, I guess I'm conscious we've got another, another meeting straight after. Um, are your hopes increasing or decreasing with each COP, given that it's 20th this year for you? <laughs> I wish you hadn't asked me that um, that question. I, I sometimes uh, worry that uh, maybe I'm just not good at this because, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years um, and, uh, you know, we, we should have made more progress by now. But then it's, it's not just on my shoulders. This mm. is a team sport. Um, I mean, on... It depends which day you ask me. I, I, I think you know that you. It's sometimes it's difficult not to be to get sort of pessimistic, as you say, because if we'd started 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, we'd put in place, for example, the sort of carbon price we could have needed. That would have kind of driven a lot of the investment we need. Um, it's too late for that now on its own. Yes, we we need carbon pricing, but we we're going to need a lot of you know stimulus and, and regulations. I, I think you know we're clearly moving in the right direction. So one of the other things that I advise is the inevitable policy response. Mm. Um, and actually, again, another thing that, that is surprising is a lot of these scenarios and pathways out there. But there, you know, there's an element of wishful thinking in yeah. those. Those are what we should be doing. Again, in every other sector, people use forecasts, mm. of, and you know there hasn't been until you know until IPR came along a forecast of the pathway we're actually on. And what IPR does is it it looks at over 300 policies and regulations across the G20 and, and plus one. It interrogates them every three months, every quarter, um, with, a, with a group of 100 policy experts to understand how likely are those policies to be enacted, enforced, you know, you know, actually impactful. Um, and then they have a model that they feed in and it gives them a predictive pathway. And actually, that it predicts that we're on a pathway, uh, we're actually on 1.7 to 1.8 pathway, which surprises a lot of people. And actually, there's been some controversy mm. around that. Um, but I would argue, you know, and, and the reason for that, uh, the reason of the controversy, but 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 actually why they they differ maybe from the IPCC's latest and, and the you know global stock take, is that they look at all the policies, not just the ones that are made it into the NDCs are kind of officially mm. reported. Um, and there's a lag between policies announced and getting into to those official you know reports um and also i think some countries are under reporting in the hope of overachieving which is something we all do we did us you know if you're smart you do that at school you do that in business um and everyone always thinks wow that person said they're going to do this and they've done much more um so there's a little bit of that probably going on but if we were still on a part if we were still only a you know two two and a half degree three degree pathway 
I fear psychologically that would be too much. People go, God, after 28 cops, we still cannot bend the curve down below two degrees. Like, it, you know, it, it's 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 pointless. Um, but the reality is, you know, IPR shows that we are. But also bloody, you know, sorry, excuse my language, but thank thank heavens, um, because what we're realising is the climate system is a lot more sensitive than we thought. And two degrees is a new four. So if we're going above two, we are in big, big trouble. 1.7 to 1.8 is bad. That is not good. And, you know, they're, 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 it's not clear we could adapt to 1.7 to 1.8. I think we're realising 1.5 is probably a lot riskier than we, we thought. Um, but I think it also sends a positive message that it is we are beginning to bend the curve. And, and there is a lot of climate policy out there across the G20 um, and others. It is beginning to have an impact. So it is working. So we could double down on that. It also should send a, a message to the financial markets, you know, who I think would probably probably discount, probably even ignore on a day-to-day -day, you know, investment decision-making basis scenarios and pathways because they're not real. Whereas a forecast, I think they have to take seriously and that the, there is a transition going on and they need to align their portfolios and investment decisions with that. But also I think it tells them that this there's a chance this could accelerate. I also believe, this is my final comment, you know, the, the, the there will be a Minsky moment. The underlying thesis of the IPR is there will be an inevitable policy response. And I think we're beginning to see that play out. I don't think it would take too many more years of extreme events on a cumulative basis around the world being reported by the media for us to, to for that Minsky moment, that inevitable tipping point to be reached. And if you're not ready for that, you know, I think you're going to be in a lot of trouble, you know, which will make 2009, the financial crisis then, look like a sort of, you know, what we say in England, a sort of Vickers afternoon tea party. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Anthony, thank you very much for all your comments. Absolutely fascinating, uh, fascinating conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. And thank you, of course, our listeners. Do tune in for our next episode of our COP28 series. Thank you again and goodbye. Mm -hmm.